You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 83. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Happy Thursday, guys. Thank you so much for listening as always. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to do a quick announcement about how things are going with our big move from Austin, Texas to Ann Arbor, Michigan. We are now less than three weeks away from the move, so things are kind of moving quickly. But we're also trying to stay as present as possible in these last two weeks to really enjoy and soak up every moment we can with our friends and my brother Michael. One of the things I'm also looking forward to as we get closer towards the end is having a final farewell for any Lively Show listeners that want to say hello and give me a big hug. So if you're interested in meeting up and having a casual drink and meeting other Lively Show listeners, you can do so on July 21st at 7 p.m. That's a Tuesday, July 21st at 7 p.m. I'm not sure how many people will be interested in showing up. So what I'm gonna do is ask you to email me at Jess at JessLively.com with the subject line Austin if you'd like to show up. And then we're going to do a head count through that email and then reach out with the details and locations once we have a better idea of how many people we need to accommodate. It'll be really low key. You don't even have to stay for very long. Just please come give me a hug and let me thank you for listening to the show. And now let's talk about today's guest, who is Tara Bliss of TaraBliss.com.au. Tara is an Australian spiritual practice and life coach who has an incredible story I am so excited to share with you. She has written a book called Hi, A Party Girl's Guide to Peace, which is based on her own personal journey as what she would call a party girl, quote unquote, and how she's helped her students in her online course, A Party Girl's Guide to Peace, along the way. So this is a really great book that has a lot of personal memoir and story to it, but also weaves in different practices that have been really effective for her students that have taken her course in the past. I'm so excited for Tara to share her story with you. So I'm not going to give you too much of a heads up on what's coming up in this episode. Tara's soothing, beautiful wisdom is something I just want to have wash over you (laughs) as we go. You'll know what I'm talking about. It really feels like she's just washing over you as you listen. And I hope that some of you at the end will feel like you've had a massage after listening to her relaxing and soothing and compassionate tone. So let's go to the show. Tara, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me, lovely. This is book club month. So we're going to be talking about your new book, Hi, which also parallels your background and your story. Where does this journey begin? Well, this journey sincerely begins with me being a very little girl. I feel like I had made up my mind about the type of person that I wanted to be from when I was about seven or eight years old. You know, they say that you're a product of your environment and I I truly believe that. And I think that some people can look around at their environment and choose that conditioning and choose that patterning. Or some people can look around and say, I want nothing to do with this. I've got to make my life different. And that has benefited me in many ways throughout my life, countless ways. But it's also got me, I won't say into a little bit of trouble because, you know, everything's cumulative and everything matters. But it's definitely sent me off on a few, I guess, journeys of rebellion throughout my life. And that started quite young as well. When you say you've decided what your life was going to be like at eight, what did you decide at that age? 
Well, I looked around at my family and I wasn't satisfied with, for example, the love that was shown. And so I decided when I grow up, I'm, I'm going to be a lover. I'm going to love people. I looked around and I said, you know, I'm not satisfied with, there's not that passion around me. And I decided that I would create a really awesome life and that I would have a lot of fun. So, you know, just think that's the very simple language that I would use from being, you know, that little girl, seven or eight. And so I sought out that fun and I became a very ambitious little girl, young lady. But then, of course, having fun as that barometer and having this real expansive experience as a barometer, when I sort of hit 13 or 14, I started getting distracted by other things that probably weren't, <laughs> weren't as, as good for me, which we'll probably go into. And, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon story, right, to get thrown away from perhaps what you really want and then getting distracted in, in the forms of other things like substances and everything like that, which gave me the feeling that I always wanted. But uh, it ended up being more, more of a destructive path, that one, that lasted quite a while. Yeah, why don't we go into it a little bit? Sure. I wrote my book High and really that was chronicling my foray into the world of being a party girl. And I, and I say party girl in inverted commas here because if I ask you what does a party girl mean to you, what are some words that spring to your mind? <laughs> That's a really great question. I don't know. I guess wild or excited. But yeah, I guess I do drift to the drugs and the drinking that you describe in the book as well. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people think those words, wild, excited, out there, crazy, loud, you know, probably this extroverted, they might think of someone that's blonde. I don't know. These are just, um, you know, stereotypes that are coming to me right now. It's funny when I look back on my party girl journey, I see elements of that, but I also see a lot of emptiness, a lot of pretending, a lot of escapism. And so when I wrote hi, I really wanted to explore that element of the party girl with the question of, are party girls really happy or is this just one big game? So let's go into your party girl past. Tell us a little bit about that. What were you running from and what did you run to in the process? I was really independent. I moved out of home quite young out of necessity about 16. And before you know it, there I am. I'm 16 years old. I'm doing my high school exams. I'm working a couple of jobs to pay my rent. And I was also, for that age, I was an elite athlete as well. You left your family at 16. You are paying your rent. You are working and you're in school and you're an elite athlete. How did you make the time? Well, I, I say out of necessity because that's really how it felt to me. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of love growing up and make no mistake, those relationships in my life I've healed and they are blossoming and beautiful now. But remember, I said from a very young age, I know who I don't want to be. And so that was kind of like the soundtrack running through my mind, you know. So I guess I found a lot of energy in being self-made in many ways. Like, I don't need them. I got this. And it was this real, this real energy of self-proving who I was. I can do this. I can be 16. I can pay my rent. I can train. I can train hard, which worked for me as a lot of things tend to work for you when you're younger and you've got that enthusiasm and that energy and nothing really seems like a risk, you know, there's nothing at stake. You're not really considering your health and your longevity and your wellness. It's just that burning the candle at both ends type of energy. How did you pay the rent while you're in high school? Oh, I worked at a pizza job. Yeah, I worked after school and on weekends when I wasn't training with my volleyball. 
and I got a little bit of rent assistance from the government, so that helped me a little bit. It was amazing, actually. It was a really good experience, a good experience for me. Set me up pretty well. How does the party girl archetype become a part of your life? So it was around this time when there were so many things that, that I felt as though I probably missed out on. And there's a lot of things that I was chasing and working very hard to chase. But the funny thing is, I never really felt as though I fit in, particularly in high school. I was a pretty withdrawn girl and I was, you know, really out there in other areas of my life, like I mentioned, really ambitious. But I really turned towards alcohol earlier on as a means to explore myself. And I liked who I was when I drank. And I think that's really key to point that out because that's the trap. I think a lot of us turn to, you know, binge drinking and perhaps drugs because we feel like we get closer to our ideal selves when we're um, involved in that. And that's very much the trap. That feels real. You know, if I can't look someone in the eye, but then I can have a few shots and suddenly I can be so engaging and so involved, that leads me to believe that maybe I'm better with it. And so that, that became a very strong sort of current in my life at about 14, 15, 16, where I just thought I was better and I liked myself more when I could escape, you know, what felt like the heavy boundaries of Tara, all these things I couldn't do, all these connections I couldn't have. And I'll say here, particularly with boys, <laughs> with boys <laughs> at the time, it was like, forget about it, forget about it. There's no way I would break out in a cold sweat around boys. <laughs> I felt like I needed something so that I could experience more of life because I felt like I simply couldn't without it. At the time in high school, you got through and you graduated while also being an elite volleyball player. How did that transition after high school for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I moved away from the town that I grew up in and I moved to Brisbane, which is the biggest city near here. And by this stage, I had my high school sweetheart who was also a volleyballer. <laughs> and yeah, this was an interesting stage these couple of years because I wanted to wear that green and gold. For those of you that don't know what that is, those are the Australian colours. I wanted to play in the Olympics. I wanted to get that overseas contract. And, you know, at one point I even had a paid scholarship to go to the United States for a collegiate scholarship. But I can be a very distracted person, you know, that whole bright, shiny object syndrome. <laughs> and so, you know, I wanted this so bad, but I was also creative. You know, I wanted to be a hairdresser. I wanted to, I had all these kind of entrepreneurial goals as well. And, you know, while I continued training, that was fantastic. I was progressing, but I suddenly I was 18. We can drink legally at 18 here in Australia, by the way. Oh, that opened up a whole new can of worms. And then I started working in hospitality. So I started serving beers and making cocktails. And anyone that's done that knows how much of a, a wormhole that is. And once you're in there, it's, it's really hard to get out actually because now you're in an environment that completely enables the lifestyle and it's normal. And, you know, it'll be Monday night and you finish work and everyone goes out. So that's when things got really tough for me. That's when drugs came into my life or when I walked towards them, I should say. And again, it was enabled and it was normal. And that's the part of my life where, you know, I would finish work at five o'clock and show up at training at 6.30 with my makeup still on from the night before. This is when my life's getting a little bit nasty. It's really not good. 
And all the while, I'm still telling myself the same thing I was telling myself when I was 16. I can do this. I got this. I can have it all. And then I, as you could probably predict, I got incredibly burnt out. Oh, yeah, I'll never forget it. I was playing a volleyball tournament and it was the first game that I ever spent the whole time on the bench. I was always, you know, a bit of a star player. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, what has happened to me? It was the most incredible insult and wake-up call where I had some perspective there. And what happened after that wake-up call? I was so ashamed, Jess, that I went home. I never put on my volleyball uniform ever again. Ever? Ever. That was the last game that you played? It was. Oh, it's still, it makes me teary. I, I, I felt so ashamed. I couldn't face myself. And then I, I, I switched off from the world. I journeyed deeper into the party for a few years, just in total denial. You know, I would think about it and then just push it away. Think about it, push it away. What would you think about? I would think about my coaches and how much love they'd given me over the years and how much they had high-fived me and said, you're going to do this, Tara. You're amazing. You're going to make it. I would think about all my teammates who I traveled with. I would think about how it felt to, you know, line up against a hitter on the other team and block their spike to such a degree where it would burn my forearms. It would be so painful, but just so amazing. All these little memories that I would think about and then I would just ignore it. Ignore it because, you know, I was really indulged in some pretty addictive behavior then. And I think that's indicative of anyone really that's gone that deep and started to lose some real perspective, the ability to forecast out beyond the weekend. I'd lost that. Is that when the drugs became an issue or is that already a part of it before that point? Yeah, I think it's already a part of it. Like when you're not sleeping before training and telling yourself that that's okay. And, you know, in the book, I explore this a little bit. Was I an addict? I don't know. I don't know. I haven't explored that word or that archetype enough. But I know that I was, quote unquote, enjoying it, for lack of a better term, enough that I really started to sacrifice some other things that made me very happy. Lately, I've been working around that term in some work that I'm doing. And I'm realizing it was there suffering. So regardless of whether it's addiction or not addiction, if there is suffering going on because of the actions you've been taking, that's a good sign that there's something that's not right, regardless of any other labels you want to put on something. Yeah. So was there suffering going on for you? Absolutely. 100%. And with those types of substances, there always is anyway, just with that, you know, chemical imbalance the days after. If you didn't suffer... Um, that would be weird. (laughs) Just the way that the chemicals interact when you're recovering from something like that. You can find yourself in quite a dark place for sure. Was there mental and emotional suffering along with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was going towards the volleyball team at that time? Oh, you know, that was only a small part of it, right? And then there's find myself in a relationship with a man that I love and then, you know, he's involved quite heavily in drugs as well and and a drug that even I was like, you know, no, I don't want to go near that. You know, so then I started to see, oh, hang on a second, like zooming out and seeing the shape of my life and remembering that ambitious little girl that I was and then actually seeing what's going on here? What trajectory am I on here? Oh my God, this is what it's supposed to be like. Having those little, oh, those little light bulb moments along the way, watching some friendships of mine deteriorate, 
My dad rings me every week and, I, you know, I wouldn't answer his call because I wasn't in a state to take it. All this stuff starts to kind of accumulate and, and leave a feeling of density in your body. It certainly did in mine. Like something's not right here. It continued regardless of the suffering, the something not right feeling. Yeah, it did. It continued. And it's funny because even while it continued, honey, I've always wanted more out of my life. And so you often hear about functioning alcoholics and how they're so dependent upon that alcohol, but then, you know, they'll go to work every day and they'll go to their commitments and they'll do this and they'll do that. I really felt like there were some parts of my life that were so out of control, but then there were others where I wanted to live a really good life, you know, and I wanted to travel and I wanted to do great things. So, yeah, I really felt as though I was living this double, triple life. So while there was that suffering, there was also that dreamer in me was still alive. I think there were a couple of key moments along my path. I don't know where the courage came from, but, you know, leaving that man that I loved and saying, you know what, there's got to be something more. And leaving the town that I lived in again and moving down to Sydney and going, there's got to be something more. A pinnacle decision for me was deciding nobody's going to pay for my plane ticket and get me overseas so I can travel. No one's going to hand me my life on a silver platter. They certainly never have my life up until this point. I've got to get myself out of my comfort zone here. I've got to try something new and meet new people and get out of this. That was 2009. 22 by this point and I went to the snow and I did a season in the snow what's really funny is that was probably we go back to that initial conversation about the party girl archetype about it being wild and exciting and fun that couple of months was all of that for me I felt like it was (laughs) I had a really good time there was no heaviness there was no density there really was no suffering during that time I had a lot of fun And I met a lot of people and I was awoken by the healing power of nature, you know, being up there in the mountains snowboarding. I'm not sure if you're a skier or a snowboarder, but I felt like life brought me alive again. I could feel it in my breath. I'm smiling a lot right now. It was a really beautiful time. How was the drinking and the drug use going at that point? Like I mentioned, there was, I mean, I think for breakfast we were having gin and tonic or something ridiculous it's just it's six, it's like six thirty here in the morning right now and I'm like oh my god I could do a green juice I'm not quite sure about gin and tonic so yeah I feel the need to mention that those things were still present I sincerely feel like in that environment it wasn't me escaping myself it was me having fun and that's not to justify what we were doing but again I was just in that space where it was normal and it was fun and We're living on top of a mountain where it's snowing all day and you're snowboarding and you're living together. You know, it was pretty wild for sure. It was like living in probably a frat house, I would say. (laughs) So less suffering. Less suffering, babe. And I'll put that down to the people that I met. They were really beautiful people, probably still a little bit lost, probably still escaping some aspect of their life. I think anyone that does seasonal work is doing that, running away from something. But it it was fun. It was a good time. And I think what it did for me more significantly was because it brought that aliveness back out in me in the mountains and in nature, it really set the tone because, you know, when I left that mountain, I very much left a large majority of that lifestyle behind with, I might say, my future husband holding hands with me as we left that mountain. 
So what helped you let go of the substance abuse at that point, leaving the mountain? Glenn and I, like I mentioned, we left hand in hand and wanted to start a life together. But if you've met your partner in a bar or out at a party or just in the party scene, you'll know that if you're on your spiritual path or your heart path or whatever you want to call that, there's this period of growing pains where, you know, I really felt like I had to get to know Glenn all over again because we had known each other in this kaleidoscopic, what felt like Narnia, this wonderland. And then we left and it was like, oh, the real world. Oh, alarm clocks. Oh, responsibility. And oh, relating to one another sober. All these, you know, what felt like profound things at the time. Was it hard? Yep, yep. It was bloody hard. It was bloody hard because you can't deny chemistry and you can't deny when you can feel a deep abiding love, but then you question everything as well. Yeah, I questioned what was happening externally. You know, you can see the friction going on between you and this like this tension of getting to know one another. And while in the past I would have just run away with Glenn, I could not do that. It was just never an option. I just felt like I needed to go very deep with this man. So yeah, darling, it was hard. I think it is hard when you're trying to get to know the person beyond each other's behavior and trying to help each other grow through that and blossom through that into a different state of being. What helped you get through? Glenn and I wanted to travel the world and experience great things together and snowboard all over the world. So we had that one very strong link between us where we just wanted to set each other's world ablaze with our experiences. And then deeper than that, around that same time, I started exploring health again, but from a different angle, not health from an angle where it's trained for 20 hours a week, just eat steamed chicken and broccoli and party hard and because you know that was my idea of health back then strangely it was you know just being able to do everything and still look good which is just so ridiculous whereas now I was exploring yoga and meditation and I started experimenting with my diet a little bit more and started journaling again which is something I did when I was a little girl I really think that because I went deeply within myself during that time I was able to lean into the relationship more rather than go, this is too hard. I'm on this spiritual path. You're not, which is something that I don't know about you, honey, but I hear that all the time from my clients and people in my work. What do I do? My boyfriend doesn't want to do yoga. I'm not sure whether this, you know, relationship is right for me. And it's like, come on, you guys. Like, this is the beautiful polarity of the relationship. He's not supposed to do yoga with you if he wants to. Right. But it's not essential. I do get that with my clients who do life with intention with me, they'll ask. And it's a little different than yoga, but it kind of leads to this question of if I am working on myself and growing in this way and my partner doesn't want to, how do we handle that? What's your suggestion? Oh, so good. I love this question so much. You can't do anything but work on you. You just can't. So you can't control the person in your relationship, but you can certainly influence the energy of the relationship by how you're treating yourself and what's happening in that internal landscape. The first iteration of High was actually an online program called The Party Girl's Guide to Peace. And I interviewed Glenn, actually, 
I wanted to show all the girls that had joined me the male perspective in case any of them were in a relationship like that. And I asked him, you've been on your own journey with this. You've left those behaviors behind as well. What could I have done for you back then that would have made life easier on you? Because I didn't make it easy on him at all. You know, when you're walking around in a relationship and you're telling the person that you love, oh, you know, you should do that. You shouldn't do that. You should, you shouldn't, you should, you shouldn't. What you're really saying is, you're so inadequate for me. If you did that, I would love you more. And so I asked him, what could I have done differently? And he said, so profound, so wise, as often that masculine wisdom is. He said, just stop talking about it and just do it. Just be happy. I just want you to be happy. You don't have to tell me about everything that you're doing. Just walk your talk, Tara. And that's exactly what it's about. I think when we're passionate about something, we want to scream it from the rooftops and we want to say, don't eat that and don't think that in your mind and why don't you do it this way and my way is better and and I've found the light, come step into the light. But actually all we need to do is embody what we're experiencing and radiate it and sort of beam that light out and know that that's enough and that's going to capture enough attention and enough curiosity in the people in your life. And then we can offer profound compassion to the people around us knowing that we've been there. I know what it's like to be tired at the end of my evening and feel like I need to drink a bottle of wine. I don't do that anymore, but I know that feeling well. And so we can offer compassion for that rather than judgment. That's beautiful. And it's one of the quotes I pulled from your book. So here, let me share it for those who are listening because I think it's beautiful and it fits this point perfectly. No matter how pure and evolved and better the choices are that you're making, they do not make you a better person. This is one of those pesky little concepts that's easier said than practiced. Uncooking raw vegan cheesecake and nailing a headstand on your yoga mat can feel pretty enlightening, but they don't make you a more significant person than old friends who are still partying just as hard as they were five years ago. What makes you a more conscious, more caring person than you were yesterday is recognizing aspects of yourself and others, being compassionate, realizing the profound truth that we each have a path to tread and no two paths are the same. Cool. <laughs> it's funny hearing it read back. I think it's Jim Gaffigan is a comedian here in the US. This just kind of speaks to this thought that I always keep in mind and it kind of speaks to what you're sharing. He talks about McDonald's and how he eats a McDonald's. In the audience, there's this reaction to him eating at McDonald's and they're kind of like, oh, you know, like I would never do that. And he goes, don't judge. Us Weekly or People Magazine might be your McDonald's. Everyone has a McDonald's of something. It may not look the same for every person or maybe it's just the judgment of what other people are doing and to recognize that it's all relative to the person and not to judge the individual choices people are making. Yeah, oh, 100%, honey, that's so true. And as well, I think, A lot of the times what we're doing when we're casting that judgment, you know, I say in the book how we can take off the party girl mask and then just decide to slap another one on. Like, I'm just going to be like a barefoot yoga, natural, own natural. And it's like, is that authentic? Is that really what's happening here? And don't get me wrong. I think that that transition would be helpful for someone because they just need to change their pattern, slap on another mask, and at least they're experiencing something different. But what I noticed in myself and what I can often see is this whole idea of this is right, that's wrong, and that's where we get ourselves into some trouble because often what we're judging, it's an expression of an internalized shame anyway. It's like we still feel that way, but we've deemed that as wrong, so we'll judge it as bad. 
Can you say that again and explain why? Oh, okay. So if I have shame about, I'll just use drinking as an example. If I have shame that I maybe perhaps used to just get home and just drink for the sake of drinking, if I hold shame about that, and if I class that as wrong, then if I see someone else doing that, I'm going to project my own shame that I would feel around that and make them bad. So some people listening might understand that in one sense, but I wonder if the question's also popping up in our heads. It's saying, what if I am, for example, not a smoker and I've never smoked before, but I see someone smoking, do I have shame about smoking or how does that reflect? Such a good question. And actually, this is something that's popped up in mine and Glenn's relationship so often. I would see him out there on the balcony. I would hear the door close and I'd be like, great, I bet he's out there smoking. And, you know, I would just have this like rage within me. And sure enough, I'd look out there and he'd be sitting there and I I would observe myself get so angry. And I'm like, what is this about? What is this about? When I got really still and quiet, it's not so much the form. So it's not that he's smoking, but it's just that he's, reaching for comfort in something that doesn't serve him. So if I can break it down to something like that, he's reaching for comfort in something that doesn't serve him. And then I'll ask myself, where do I do that? I still do that. Whether it's Facebook, whether it's, you know, it might sometimes be food. That's how you can break it down. If you get rid of the actual form and go, where do I do what he's trying to achieve there? That might be able to give you that uh, doorway into compassion. That's brilliant. I just want to like marinate on that. So when we find ourselves judging someone for their choices, can you say that again? It's reaching for comfort in something that does not serve them? Yeah, I'd say so. All they're doing is trying to meet a need. They're trying to meet a need. So I think sometimes we can classify people like, oh, you're weak. You're weak because you're smoking. Where's your strength? Where's your caliber? Where's your resilience? discipline or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's, you know, they're actually meeting a need in that moment. And we'll all find a way to meet our need. It's just that each of us will find a different way to do that. Yeah, that's where that compassion piece comes in. Oh, they're actually nurturing themselves on one level. And it may not be very healthy. But in their mind, that's what's going on. So to circle back up until this point, as you're leaving the mountains, feeding your needs or meeting your needs with drugs and alcohol in varying forms throughout those years. How did you shift the need or the way that you're meeting that need? What helped you let go of those substances? Because there may be people listening to this that might be struggling to do the same themselves. So actually, chapter one of my book is called Curiosity Got You Here, Curiosity Will Get You Out. You know, I think as a young girl, as a young lady, What got me into that scene was, again, that curiosity. Who could I be with this? Who could I transform into? And I can honestly say that it's it's the same question and it's the same energy that got me out of it. You know, we need variety in our lives. We can't stay in the same pattern for very long. And, And oftentimes to get out of that, we'll hit some type of bottom. Or sometimes we'll just have this beautiful little life altering moment and it can be very subtle. How it happened for me was... I actually got my way out of this through my body, through my physical body. So I kind of looked in the mirror one day and I just did not notice that girl. I didn't recognize her. You know, I'd always been very physically strong and fit. And then one day after this spiel in the mountains, I feel like I looked in the mirror. You know, there's this puffy girl in 
front of me who was incredibly, you call it a drug bloat, where you're just so entirely full of toxins that you, you become puffy. And, you know, these dark rings under my eyes. And it was the reality check, you know, I had had so much fun. And then you come back out in the real world and it's like, oh my goodness, is that what's been happening the last couple of years? So my way out back into myself was back in the past, you know, who could I be with this stuff? Now it was, oh my God, who, who could I be? Who could I be if I look after myself? Jeez, it's time. I have to make a change here. That's what got me out. It was that same curiosity, that same, oh, I wonder what would happen if, oh, I could feel strong in my body again and like bounce out of bed at five o'clock in the morning like I used to do. And that became really attractive to me. Wasn't it a blog actually you found in Utah that helped spark that desire for that type of lifestyle? Yeah, yeah. So I had, you know, I had been kind of dabbling away and, and, and researching as often people do, you know, you get down the rabbit hole on, on blogs. And I had sort of started a travel blog chronicling our adventures, mine and Glenn's. We had gotten engaged by this point and the wedding was coming up and I just, I wanted to look nice on my wedding day. I wanted to be radiant, <laughs> which was a far cry from how I'd felt in the last kind of five years. And yep, there's this 19 year old girl her name was Jessie. She doesn't have a blog anymore. I'm very sad. I've often wanted to reach out to her and go, you know, you changed my life. She just did a lot of juicing and she, you know, she ate a lot of raw food and her eyes sparkled and her skin was so radiant. And I was about 24 at that time. She was 19. And I'm just like, wow, this girl, there's something magnetic about her. And she really was an angel really sent to me, I feel. We would email each other and I would send her pictures of my juices and of my little recipes. And she was so supportive of me at the beginning of my journey there. So I think like a lot of people, my leg into that door was vitality, health, wellness. And when I started to see that weight drop and my skin clear up and my energy soar, it was like, oh my God, sign me up. This is what I want my life to look like because the results were so visceral and real, like measurable. So it was easy to swap the drugs and booze for juice. It was so easy. It was actually pretty hilarious because, again, same energy but just a different form. I was working in a bar still at that stage and, you know, I would always look at the bar and look at the liqueurs and the cocktails and think, what could I make tonight? And now I would, I would do the same thing at 6 o'clock in the morning. I'd go in the fridge and go, hmm, what juice will I make this morning? So same sort of energy there as you can see but different channel. I love that. So where do we go from there? So how do you get from leaving the mountains to you sitting, talking to us today? Where we go from there is the journey just deepens and it, and it becomes less about, well, you know, I'm still incredibly passionate about, you know, food and, and vitality that has evolved. But in comes meditation. When I started meditating, what's really beautiful is I started actually receiving memories of these years that I had meditated as a little girl, but I didn't know that that was what I was doing. So this whole spiritual journey for me has really sincerely felt like a journey of coming home and remembering actually who I am beyond all these behaviors and my circumstances. So I really explored meditation and yoga. Glenn and I continued to travel, which became part of my spiritual practice as well. You know, rather than just escaping home, it was really immersing myself in the cultures and uh, it's really difficult to explain just really feeling 
alive and like I didn't have to wait for anything anymore and I didn't have have to wait to be given a break. And I think that that energy, that little piece there is what's made me a powerful coach because all my life I have known I have to go out and do this on my own and it hasn't always ended up pretty. But, you know, when I work with people and I can see that they're waiting, you might see this too a little bit, they're, they're waiting for a break or they're waiting for some their circumstances to change. And I can tell from my experience that it's, it's not about that. It's about you with conviction honouring the type of person that you want to be and recognising, you know, life is short. You have a say in how you want to create your life. What's it going to be? Those aren't questions that I asked myself while I was in the depths of that party era. It was, what are we doing this weekend? So for me, it really came down to what memories do I want to create? How deeply can I love my partner? How can I serve other women? You know, a theme writing throughout my life was in one way or another, I always wanted to help somebody. I wanted to be useful. I went into hairdressing because I wanted to make people feel beautiful. I wanted to be creative and that didn't last long. And then I went into personal training because I wanted to help transform people. That didn't catch my attention for very long. I know why now because I can see the trajectory of my life and we so often teach what we need to learn. I needed to learn about this whole construct of finding the peace within you, getting high on life and on your own essence. And that's what I have been privileged to teach other people to do as the years have kind of rolled out. For those listening, so your blog, Such Different Skies, became more about these things you're speaking of, these tangibles and intangibles, and then coaching grew out of that. Then your online course, The Potty Girl's Guide to Peace, and then ultimately, hi. Yeah, it was just, you know, a trickle effect. I think some people get really overwhelmed. I don't know where to start, you know, because they might look at where someone is now and go, oh, there's just so far for me to go from where I am to where they are. Really, it was just about one decision after another. Like you said, I had a blog, Such Different Skies, which was a travel blog. I've always said that my blog has held the space for me to become who I'm becoming because without that little online space, I wouldn't have somewhere to explore on a public platform, which then allowed me to serve. So my blog post changed from, hey, I went on this hike this weekend to, what are you afraid of? What are you scared of in your life? Here's what I'm afraid of and here's how I'm working through it. And the tone of my message started to change a lot from personal growth. And that happened very organically. It wasn't like I woke up one day and was like, I'm going to be a life coach. Really, it happened very accidentally. I accidentally became a coach just from exploring my own life and sharing it and coming at it with an attitude of what else is in here? What can we find in here? We don't have to settle. Where's the gold? Where's the little nugget? That's pretty much how that story, you know, momentum, you you start to see a bit of a snowball. One post becomes three, becomes 10. One email saying, how can you help me? Becomes three, becomes 10, becomes 100. And eventually you have enough content and enough experience that you can create something else. I decided to create the Party Girl's Guide to Peace. And then eventually I'm like, I can do better than that. This isn't good enough. i got to go deeper here. And then I I immersed into what became a two-year project with the book. What was that choice like to make the decision to self-publish rather than to traditionally publish? 
I'll start off by saying I truly believe that I'll be a published author. I feel like I know that. I feel like I know my desire in that quite deeply. So the decision to self-publish was a very conscious one, actually. There was a few reasons for that. The main one being by the time I launched High, so we're talking November 2014, I launched the book. You've got to understand, Jess, I had grown so much. I was ready for a different conversation. I was ready to explore what was becoming real for me then. And I had so much I wanted to say to help these party girls transition and find some peace deep within them. But I was also really ready to move on. So there was a sense of urgency around really getting the message out. Not only that, I think this is such a beautiful thing about our blogging and being online is that I'm a very big believer in sharing what you're creating while you're creating it. So before I even launched the online program, I remember posting something on Instagram saying, I'm thinking about this thing called, you know, like the party girl's guide to peaceful living or something. Does that sound good? Like, does anyone want that? (laughs) And it's so funny to look back on that now because it's in those moments where I really connected to something authentic that I could offer, where I did get a lot of feedback and a lot of a rallying around that and a lot of, yeah, when's it coming? So I had people banging down the door of my inbox, honey, going, where is the book? Where is the book? And I knew that if I was going to go down the traditional route, I'd have to put a proposal together, which would probably take another two or three months and then go through that very lengthy period, perhaps, potentially. And to be quite frank, I just knew the time is right. I got to do this now. And self-publishing offered me a really beautiful opportunity to do that. Thank you for sharing that. So now I want to return to a few other nuggets from the book. First, when you label your current experience, you lessen its power. But when you identify with the label, it lessens your power. Can you explain that for us? Okay, great. So I was just thinking of a really tangible example. To label something to lessen it would be something like, let's just say I'm feeling sadness around something or pain. I could be holding onto that in my body and in my mind, I could be like, I'm fine. I got this. I'm fine. And I'm really losing strength to that. It's going to take a lot of strength to really hold onto that facade. Whereas if I get really honest and find the courage to get still and go, I'm hurting. I'm not happy right now in this moment. Then you lessen the abrasiveness of that body state. It's kind of like you release the gas valve and it's like, finally, the truth. And then once you've communicated that, you can start asking some questions which will help you either move through that or find some support or just be kinder to yourself. Be honest. Be honest about what you're going through. There's no need to pretend and be a a superwoman. What's true for you right now? And when you can label that and bring that to the foreground, you lessen the power of that. Now, Conversely, when I talk about when you're identifying with something, so we'll just go with the party girl. I call it the party girl archetype. If I identify with myself as a party girl, I'm a party girl, I'm a party girl, I'm a party girl. I'm lessening my inner light. I'm losing my power because if I think and know that I'm a party girl, there's other experiences that I simply just cannot have because I don't believe I can. Another great example, I'll just move quickly into this one because it's a really good example to share is the archetype of the tomboy, which is something I definitely resonated with growing up. If I believe I'm a tomboy, then there's going to be a lot of stuff going in my mind where I might recognize beauty or grace or elegance in someone. And I'll think to myself, 
I can't be that because I'm a tomboy. And it's like I'm losing myself. I'm losing my light to a word, to a sentence, to an idea of what I think I am. And really it's just a construct of the mind. It's not truth. It's just a limitation. So if it's the identification. It's when you own it. Like I am that, you lose your power to that. So, you know, the whole book really high is about do we have the courage to feel, uh, you know, perhaps a little bit naked beneath that archetype? So what happens when we let the tomboyness fall away or the party girlness fall away? Naturally, we want to fill that space up with something, but really everything comes from the void, you know, everything comes from that nothing space. So it's uh, really encouraging people to feel that divine emptiness within, not as in the dark, sinking deep pit of despair, but this place where everything feels possible and whole. That was my whole idea of talking about that construct there. So one of the things you mention in the book, which might surprise people who are listening, is that you're not abstaining from alcohol altogether. And you've made a big point about how everyone needs to make the choice that's right for them. But ultimately, if someone has been struggling with drugs or alcohol in the ways you're speaking of, and we're not saying, you know, this is for necessarily someone that needs to go to a 12-step program or needs rehab or that needs different help. But if you're in a situation like Tara, what do you recommend that people do to lessen their grip, to fill that need with those substances? This is a beautiful lesson in when you publish something, it's there for life. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a different answer than what you wrote in the book? I believe that nothing stays the same and I, and I really believe that my priorities are shifting a lot. I know I've gone most of this year absolutely sober. I feel like actually sobriety is completely woven into the fabric of my future. I, I just sense that it is. Not because I feel like I need it, because I feel like I would just like to explore another level. You know, it's like, oh, maybe I can meditate a little deeper or maybe I can run that half marathon or, oh, maybe I'd like to try out what it's like to be sober for a period of time. Again, it's such a personal thing where people, the the whole book is aimed at getting people within so that they can actually decide what decision they want to make because so many women have come away from reading high and going, I know what I need to do. I know that I need to let this go forever and I'm ready now. And a lot of people have read that book and gone, I have so made peace with that part of my life and now that I know that I can savor and enjoy a glass of wine on occasion. So both of those I think are a total win for me. I mean, I love hearing both of those stories. But your own answer has shifted. Yeah, my own answer has shifted for sure. It's always shifting. I'm always observing this. What's true for me right now? Do I want to cut this thing out of my life so that I can be a good yogi, which am I playing games again there now? Or do I sincerely need to cut that out for my health? It's like constant back and forth. And I think this is good for people to know. Once you write a a self-help book, it's not all sorted out. It's how do I feel about this thing in my life, this presence? What is my container around this? I think some people think, oh, you know, I'll just have one a week or I'll just have one a night. That's where it can start to get a little bit stuffy in the brain, you know, when we're trying to create a boundary around that. And so if people are having difficulties with that, I would say something that really helped me was just to think in perhaps 90 days, try go 90 days sober as an experiment, remember, not as a task. Think of it as an experiment, as a game. 
I didn't drink the first three months that I was immersed in writing the book. I said that I wouldn't drink until I finished my rewrite, my second read through of my first draft. That might be good for someone to have that periodical, let's just see what happens, which is something I say a lot. Let's just see what happens. Let's see how it feels. What I have found a lot of people do is you start to see it peter off. Like someone might decide, I feel like I want to explore what it's like to never binge drink again. And then a few months later, I'll catch up with them again. I feel like I have really enjoyed that. And now it's time for me to explore how it feels to never drink this or that or, or this much. It starts to really peter off, Dallin. I haven't been drunk in about three or four years, I think it's been. For me now, it's not that period of going, oh, drinking is a problem. It's that beautiful period of refining. It's a very personal thing. What I've experienced is when you go, I'm never doing this again. That can be stressful on the nervous system and on the, uh, on the mind and can create more tension in the body, which can lead to more binging. So I would say to take a really gentle approach, if you need a 12-step or if you need support, go get that. But try this out from an experiential or an experimental point of view. Crowding out helps a lot, doesn't it? Like crowding out your evening glass of wine, you might experiment with beautiful herbal teas. There needs to be an element of replacement, I feel. Otherwise, that blank space where something once was, that can be stressful as well. Do you think that part of your journey with that was allowing yourself to fully enjoy the experience without the abuse of it in order to let it go without making it this totalitarian, all or nothing approach? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It, absolutely. Absolutely it was. When I was a party girl, I'm not sure if I ever even tasted <laughs> what I was drinking. You know, there was, I had a goal. There was a goal in mind. That's something that Glenn and I experienced because he's a chef. I'm so blessed. And we have said throughout our relationship that, you know, the dinner table is our altar, is the altar of our relationship. So he would bring this beautiful food to the table and then I would bring this beautiful wine and it would really be a, a sensual, beautiful experience. Wine, when you think of it, there's such history there. Uh, you know, it can be such a spiritual process in many parts of the world and I felt like I could connect to that energy the event of enjoying a nice glass of wine with dinner. So yes, Stalin, that, that enjoyment aspect skyrocketed, which meant that I never had to abuse it because it was, it was such a nice cozy place to settle into having a different experience with alcohol where it didn't even seem like alcohol. It was, you know, enjoying a flavor which complemented another flavor, which, yeah, Thank you so much for bringing that up because that's so key where it goes from escapism to enjoyment. What would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? I always like to remind people that they're so not alone. When we're going through any type of change, it feels so personal. It just feels so personal. No one understands me and it feels permanent. It feels like it's going to be around forever. What helped me a lot, again, was deciding that whatever force got me here was the very force that would save me. And I think it's really important that everybody knows that. If curiosity can get you into trouble, it can also be a saving grace. You will always get your needs met. It's just a matter of how. Then you can start asking yourself more empowering questions. You can ask yourself, how do I want to feel? What type of life do I want to live? How do I want to feel when I wake up in the morning? 
And it's when you ask yourself better questions that you create a better life. You know, often we're walking around thinking, what's wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? Why does she have that and I don't? Why can't I figure this out? Well, if you ask yourself questions like that, you're going to find the answer and it's, that's when you're going to go into that deep, dark, bottomless pit. But if you start asking yourself, what do I want? and really opening up that possibility, then you become your own guru and you become your own life coach because you're on your own side now and you're asking yourself questions that are going to reveal answers that will lead you one step at a time into a life that you really want to live. Because please remember, nobody's going to serve it to you. You can't wait for anything. It needs to come from you. It needs to come from your own heart. Access your heart by asking the right questions. Beautiful. And for anyone listening who knows the show well, I skipped the doubts and resistance question because basically this whole episode has been an ode to that question. So Tara, thank you so much for sharing your light with us today. It's been a joy to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much, love. It was really good to revisit this. I haven't talked about my book for a while. So thank you. It's really beautiful that your people will be able to hear the message. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Tara, thank you for coming on the show. If you'd like to send Tara a message, you can do so on Instagram. Her handle is at Tara underscore bliss. And if you'd like to find me on Instagram or Twitter, I'm at Jess C is in Cambridge lively. And now for a sneak peek about next week's episode. Next week, we are talking with authors Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan, authors of The Royal We and the bloggers behind the fashion website, Go Fug Yourself which is F-U-G, in case you couldn't hear that clearly, .com. I am beyond excited for this one, you guys. I'm pretty much jumping up and down for the last two weeks as I've been reading The Royal We. Mr. Lively has seen me firsthand go insane for this book. I have not read a fiction book I have loved more in many, 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 many years. I think that this is an extremely amazing fiction book for anyone who's interested in romance, just a good old love story, or is at all interested in Princess Kate and Prince William. If you haven't read it yet, I highly suggest diving in. It may be something you can't put down, and you'll end up like me in a Royal Wee recovery program trying to get back onto a normal schedule after staying up so many nights without being able to put it down that now I can't even fall asleep at a normal hour anymore, even though the book is over. So until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 